0: Welcome to another Exploratory Journey episode, and today I'm joined by Mike, who is a senior associate at London Law Collective, specialising in startups and social enterprise, and in this episode we discuss everything from his career journey and how he ended up specialising in social enterprise law to the future of social enterprise, and speaking about legal mistakes that early stage founders make. Hi, and welcome to another Exploratory Journey episode. And today I'm joined by Mike. Hi, and thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Hey, happy to be here.
0: Would you be able to tell us a bit more about kind of your career journey and how you got to where you are and what you kind of get up to today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I studied English at university and then did the GDL, um, went to work in Hong Kong for a year at a startup. Uh, before coming back to do the LPC. Uh, Then I trained at Hogan Lovells which was a great intro to law Um, and then after I qualified I moved to a firm that focuses on startups and then in the middle of the pandemic, so just over a year ago, uh, my boss, his wife and I founded a new law firm called London Law Collective which Advisors, startups, and social enterprises. So that's where I am now as a senior associate.
0: A pretty varied journey, I guess. Could you could you tell us a bit more about your role at the London Law Collective and what you kind of do, and maybe even a short kind of like day to day overview? I mean, it's probably very varied, but
1: sure. Yeah. So all of our clients are startup founders, entrepreneurs, um, small businesses. So Um, I would say the the engine of what we do is corporate transactions. So guiding companies through fundraisings, a bit of um, mergers and acquisitions, and then all the day-to-day stuff that comes up when you're running a, a small business and you're not necessarily legally trained and you don't have anybody in your team who is legally trained. So lots of employment queries, data protection queries, sometimes disputes, but it's all focused on the context of um, growing businesses and predominantly based in the UK so it's very broad in terms of legal areas but very um, focused I would say in terms of industry which is you know why somebody who's trained as a corporate lawyer um, can answer questions that are relevant on things like employment law or data protection and the real skill is knowing when you're at the edge of your expertise so if it's a simple employment question i might take it but if it's more complicated then we've got consultants that are specialists in different legal areas and we address the loop them in at the relevant time
0: so you actually you, well, you mentioned you studied english at cambridge what kind of initially motivated you to convert to law
1: yeah so it's it's, it's a tricky question isn't it and, and i guess there's, there's always two different ways you can answer this question you you can do the interview answer which is oh you know English is all about language and law is all about language (laughs) and it's all just so fascinating but real life is a bit messier than that and the routes that people take are never quite as well thought out Um, I think for me I chose to do English at uni because it was my favourite subject very passionate about it. it it's still a big part of you know, my identity now, I would say. Um, and I, I suppose when I was at uni, there was just so many different options for what to do next. There was no specific route that, that came from, from the English degree. So it was a result of, you know, the standard going to career fairs, looking at different, um, different options. I knew that I was interested in business and startups and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, probably didn't really realise what big law, um, what, what the experience of being a, a lawyer, at a, a, you know, a, a big international law firm was like before I applied. But um, it was brilliant training, and I'm glad that I ended up at Levels. Um, and it's by virtue of going there that has got me where I am today, which is sort of you know full circle back to that business and startups vibe, where, where I started from really. And
0: I, I guess that kind of comes with time to figure out where you want to be, because, you know, with the click of your fingers, you're not going to necessarily know that this is the path for the rest of my life. But you you mentioned you trained at Hogan Lovells and, you know, it's a huge international global law firm with a massive well, a stellar reputation. Um, But what made you kind of leave the traditional city law firm? Because, you know, a training contract, two years, four seats, and probably gave you a lot of opportunity to kind of get involved in a lot of different work and also just kind of open your eyes to law a bit more. But why didn't you stay like so many of your fellow trainees probably did?
1: Yeah, it's it's a good question. And, you know, the received wisdom is that, oh, you need to stay for x number of years after you qualify to you know establish yourself but i I actually think if you find an opportunity that seems good for you just just take it don't um don't don't let opportunities um, pass you by um for me i was really lucky during my training contract that i got to work on a project called hl base which is business and social enterprise and um it's essentially a training scheme where uh, I think they do it with associates now, but at the time it was trainees were given a um, startup or social enterprise that had a specific legal problem. And the idea was that it would be the trainees' clients, so they would do all the communication. And it, it basically got early stage lawyers over the hurdle of not having as much client contact because traditionally, you know, it's the partners that would deal with the in-house counsel, and the trainees would be a bit more behind the scenes. But obviously, that's that's that means there's a huge gap in people's training. Um, so this scheme, partly, it was, it was just really cool. But it was also to skill up, um, you know, trainees in their client-facing um, uh, abilities. And so I managed to um, assist the central team of of, of partners and key stakeholders in the firm that were putting this scheme in place and and running it and and that was a fantastic opportunity but it meant that I you know I I really saw that these early stage companies was what I wanted to focus on and unfortunately for uh, a a huge firm like like Lovells they're not really geared up for um, advising those clients as a core part of their business you know they're their clients, the big international, fir- um, big international corporates, understandably. So, um, I I thought, oh, you know, what's what can the next step be? And, um, somebody great that I worked with internally introduced me to the law firm that I moved to immediately after Lovells. Um, and I thought, you know, <clears throat> I know this is the area I want to end up, so I might as well make the jump now rather than sticking it out for a few more years. Um somewhere that, that I know isn't where I want to end up
0: but do you, do you think kind of that that grounding in law from training at such a huge firm was kind of beneficial to you moving on
1: I, I do I do and you know I, I think there there's always going to be pros and cons of wherever you train but um two big ways that that training stays with me now one is um sort of the high standards and the high expectations um in terms of you know attention to detail that if a job needs to get done then you know people are just can stay un- until it's done um and, and i think other workplaces outside of law that are, are a bit more relaxed I means it's, it, it's very difficult for you to be able to switch into that Focused mindset. If you haven't trained in an environment like that, um, and the other one is because we do represent startups that might be on quite a steep growth trajectory, um, we find ourselves all the time negotiating opposite big international firms. And most of us trained a, a big firm, so we you know know a bit about how they operate, what um, their processes are going to be internally, and sort of how to speak that language, which means. Deals go through quicker, more efficiently, uh, and we're just more trusted by, um, by you know, l- lawyers in a in, in a big law environment. And I think that's something that we, um, that our clients really benefit from.
0: And I guess so. After leaving Lovells, you kind of moved on to a much smaller firm, um, Ignition Law, where you were an associate and head of their social enterprise team. What was the jump like and what was kind of the biggest challenges you faced in doing so? Because I'm assuming at a firm like Hogan Lovels with offices and resources across the globe, you know, a lot of training was probably provided to you. You probably had a lot of support if you ever needed it, be it from paralegals, be it from, you know, other resource staff. What was it kind of like moving to a much, much smaller firm?
1: Yeah, well, I think the biggest switch is probably f- it's around focus. So at a big firm, the different service areas are, are fairly well defined. So, you know, there is a BD team, there's a marketing team, there's a PR team, and there's obviously overlap between those teams and senior lawyers, especially sometimes junior lawyers do get involved with those processes. But it's a lot clearer whose job it is to do what Out small firms, especially when the firm's still being built, which is really fun, really exciting situation to find yourself in. There's so much to do that you're at real risk of taking on too much and then nothing ever gets done or, you know, you just find yourself completely burned out. And even if you're super enthusiastic to do it, there's a real art to saying, no, come on, that's not what I've... Been given responsibility for, so I'm just gonna just gonna let that slide, or you know, let the fire burn over there, as 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 they say. So it's a lot more about choosing where your priorities are and trying to have the self discipline to stick to them. Um, that's the challenge. But I think the flip side is I massively love that kind of environment where you know there's chance to get involved in all kinds of things. You can let your creativity run wild. Um, and, and for me, that wasn't something that I felt that I got at, at a big firm.
0: Do you, I guess you kind of mentioned like building up a firm from scratch, that's a startup in itself in a way. And, you know, you advise startups, but being able to kind of see what startups are going through from your own perspective of building up a firm is probably also very valuable, would you say?
1: Totally, totally. It's, it's almost like you're a startup advising other startups um, and, you know, you do have to um it, it's not a question of, of quality of the of the work product that that has to be a given so you know in, in a law firm the two things you have to get right is the, the quality of the advice that you're giving and ensure that you're complying with all, all the compliance frameworks that the SRA give you which are um fairly involved uh, it's quite a high barrier that that you have to meet and that's an ongoing process but other than that you're still Um, experience in the same pain points as yeah as the businesses you're advising whether it's hiring process BD process um, even things like setting up new bank accounts it's um, really interesting stuff but um, very time consuming stuff
0: but I also guess like when you see the end result it's probably very satisfying to know that you've been part of something like that and because of that you've mentioned kind of there are challenges when you've kind of moved from like Hogan Lovells to where you are now, um, and over the past few years, particularly advising startups, do you think there are any challenges in your current role um, which you may have not foreseen when kind of going into the role? Um.
1: So the one about focus and prioritizing your own time is is definitely a big one. I think you definitely see how much work goes on behind the scenes in terms of client relationships, building referral networks, all of that kind of stuff, which I think as a junior lawyer in a big firm, you might take for granted a bit. I think, you know, you, you don't really have as much awareness of of where the work comes from or, or why the work comes in and you know that bD is a thing but you don't realize just how much effort and focus people put into it so that was something that I, I found super interesting and have've really loved getting involved with um but you know it, it is a scary thought that if you are in a small firm and there aren't people around you that are, are good at bD or well, if you're not good at bD then Then you're going to be in trouble. And I suppose it's the same for big firms, but you're just not exposed to that reality of what running a business entails until you're a lot more senior um, at at a big firm compared with a new firm or or a smaller firm.
0: I guess the flip side of that is kind of like, particularly for you working with startups, um, you know, startups, their intention is to scale and grow and kind of watching them scale and grow and helping them through that process from, you know, they might be very, very small to taking on employees or, you know, fundraising or even you never know, even to IPO level Um, and kind of building that relationship over years is probably also very exciting.
1: It's it's really good fun. Um, There are a few clients that I started working with almost as an NQ when they were, you know, very much day one just two uni friends Um, and well this one client I'm thinking of they've they've grown they've got a a full built out uh, board of directors they've done various funding rounds they've got clients and partnerships with huge huge companies and they're absolutely flying and it feels great that you know obviously to begin with it wasn't just me advising them but I've sort of as I've become more experienced they've build out the business as well and yeah it's it's, it's a real relationship that's grown there which is fantastic to be part of.
0: So I kind of wanted to move on to one of your big passions which is social enterprise and something you specialize in highly. What kind of drew you to the area and even like even in the startup world that's big like social enterprises it was quite a niche area but the impact they can have is huge. So what made you kind of specialize in that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because I never really set out to, you know, to to specialise in it, and and it, it's not it's not a well defined legal area. There's so there's no legal definition of, of a social enterprise, but I suppose um, just thinking when 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 can I say it, it started? So I, I suppose when I was eighteen, I went on a government program to. Um, India, sponsored by the British Council. And the ethos of that was it was very much um, government and business partnership, kind of linking Britain to to the globalised world. So it was China, India and Brazil that, that took part in this scheme. And it was all very much, you know, business can be a force for good, and that's a phrase that's been picked up by the B Corp movement, which has gone from strength to strength. And um, our firm now is is uh, has got B Corp pending status, which means um, when we've been trading enough, we'll be able to be a B Corp. But this idea of, you know, business isn't just there to make a profit. Business is where it impacts all of our lives, in, you know innumerable ways we all um, spend as much time in business as, as we do at home with our loved ones um, and, and so there's no reason why we, we shouldn't be able to harness the resources of business but also if you think you know, about law and, and the rules of business to make the world a better place it's just sort of always seemed quite intuitive to me that that's um, that that's the reality and so when you see companies that are focused on, on more than just profits, whether you know, they've got an impact metric to solve a, um, a societal problem and that's just as important to them, or they're just a company that wants to um, make sure that they're doing everything in, in a way that's good for society and the environment such as a B Corp. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting space to be in. Um, and. I suppose, gradually, I just started working with more and more of those businesses, getting more interested in the legal um, structures that that help those businesses do what they're doing. Um, And and then you sort of become known as somebody who's got an interest in it and people ask you questions, you research it more. Um, and, And so I guess that's where I find myself now. But the important thing for me is it's not a sector separate and, you know, isolated by itself is something that's permeable with mainstream business, especially in the context of funding rounds. So if you have, um, you know, take, uh, imagine a a tech company that has a social mission as well. You wouldn't want that company to just take money from uh, social impact investors. You want it to be, um, you know, plugged into mainstream VC landscape, taking money from, various types of investors so that its mission can be shared um throughout society generally Um, and and I think that's the most effective way to you know another cliche is to move the dial to make sure that all businesses business is a force for good rather than you know it just being some subsector of of um of the business community
0: and I guess that that mindset around kind of having that positive impact is shifting within business leaders and for instance on the sustainability front and kind of tackling climate change is quite a big thing but do you do you see kind of any big big kind of trends in the sector towards um social enterprises and do you actually think that you know you mentioned traditional VC investors do you think they're becoming more open to investing in companies which aren't necessarily whose primary aim is not necessarily to kind of make profit
1: yeah good good questions and i think there's a there's a few things there i think first of all it's useful to think about the different um labels and and trends in vocabulary that you see so social enterprise isn't as common now as the phrase ESG. So, you know, reporting on um, environmental, social and, and governance issues. That's obviously huge at the moment. Um, but there, there, there does tend to be peaks and troughs for how popular these these phrases are. And really, it's all part of the same thing. Like, how can business be more, more responsible? Um, so there, there are various trends within these different subsets so yeah esg reporting in the fight in financial services is, is huge social impact bonds were big a, a few years ago and there's slightly less noise um, around them um at the moment impact investing is is still quite a, a common um topic that that you hear about i think it's very hard for vcs though because if you look at the business model of of venture capital, they're sort of given a load of private cash from limited partners, and they have to realize a return on that by placing it in um, growing private companies. And I I suppose when you are a custodian of somebody else's money, it's it's quite tricky to take risks on, companies that aren't just going to be totally knock the ball out of the park um, tech companies and, and there is some there are some people that say if you try and ride two horses at once then you know you, you're going to fall off as in if you have a social mission as well as focusing on on, on the bottom line you're not going to do um, both um, you're not going to do both well it has to be one or the other. I obviously don't agree with that but I can understand why that might affect a VC's ability to raise money for their fund. Um, The other thing though is that the returns for a VC fund is normally, um, you know, there's a lot that don't go anywhere. There's a few that have okay exits but there's one or two that have, you know, massive exits like 40 times um, and they're the ones that make the fund back and I think a lot of social businesses they just aren't geared up to have that growth trajectory so there, there's there is a trend at the moment for hybrid investment instruments um, and by that what i mean is people might invest some money to get shares in the company but also half of the investment will be a loan so it'll be debt it'll be money that gets put in and then it's paid off over time and that might mean that on each of the investments, the fund makes three or four times its money back rather than zero, 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 40 times its money back. Um, so that's a really interesting trend, but it's not something that mainstream VCs do. It's more um, quite, quite specialist funds that are um, expressly, we're a, a social impact investor, and, and this is a special instrument that we've designed to solve this problem of um, impact businesses not necessarily being those huge exit businesses, but still being profitable, making money for investors and and doing good in society at the same time.
0: That's really interesting to hear about. And I guess also then at the same time, you know, with societal um, opinions around certain issues shifting, for instance, with regards to, you know, plastic usage or climate change, um, companies kind of growing out of that and trying to solve, um, solve the problems in those areas probably actually have a lot more potential if VCs invest in them. And have you kind of seen that certain companies or certain startups are getting a lot of attention from VCs when, when you're kind of working on deals?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I, I think companies focused on sustainability and, and the, the climate crisis, um that's obviously a a very hot area um at the moment and 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 that's definitely a good thing but i think it's definitely changed over you know say the past 10 years where it was a bit of a of a fringe thing to now um you know alternative sources of energy carbon offsetting all that kind of thing is is very mainstream and um I suspect that there will continue to be trends where the big energy companies are changing their business model and pivoting into these spaces and there's way more resources and R&D efforts focused on on this area and then you get whole communities springing up around it so that there's you know there's degree courses on uh, environmental finance and Um, just a lot more focus on it which which means that it's sort of self-fulfilling I think in in other impact areas it's slightly less um less accelerating so uh you know things to do with housing for example or or social issues rather than the environmental they're still a lot less um a a lot less growth opportunities at the moment i would say and so you see a lot fewer or a a lot fewer companies in those areas um taking on say vc investment which isn't to say they don't have ordinary investment from angels or or bank loans or 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 things like that vc is a very small asset class it's like you know one percent of of businesses are appropriate for vc funding Um,
0: but yeah, I, I guess only time will tell where where kind of the growth areas will actually be. But in terms of in terms of advising startups and scale-ups and smaller businesses, have you found there are differences when advising, you know, the companies you advise today in comparison to maybe the larger corporations you may have advised when training?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I suppose. You have to remember that I was a trainee <laughs> when I was advising the big corporate. So, you know, you, you do have to pick out what's a difference in nature of the client versus just a the, the difference nature in the work. Yeah. seniority. But my my general thoughts, and and you know, my, my general thought is that when you're advising a big corporate, it's quite likely they're going to have an in-house legal team. And so what that means is you're doing work that an in-house lawyer has outsourced to you for um for whatever reason it might be that your team's a specialist in that area they, they want you to look into it it might be that it's a huge bit of work that they don't have capacity for in-house and so you know big transaction they want they might be a corporate lawyer themselves but they want a big firm to handle it for them sign up on it and and, and run it Um, The majority of our clients don't have that legal training. So you're very much translating legal concepts into um, language that they can understand, making it really relevant to to their business and and also understanding what the actual pain point is for them. So, you know, they might um, say oh, I want you to do this for us. But then you dig a bit deeper and realise that they've sort of got the wrong end of the stick of what's actually necessary. So you say, okay, let's take a step back. I think you can do it this way. Does that sound like it would work for you? And they'll be like, yeah, that's great. Crack on. Um, and, and I really enjoy that. It's sort of a, a coaching element to the job in a way that you're, you're there to, um, you know, turn their goals into um well it's a bit of a cliche but into a legal solution i suppose it it really is like that rather than um rather than you forming part of a strategy that's been mostly been uh, pinned down in-house already by the very experienced and and good lawyers that work in-house at that corporate
0: I I guess that kind of makes the job really exciting because, you know, you're you're working at the forefront of these changes and, you know, with such small teams that startups have, you probably have quite a big impact without, in comparison to maybe the impact you would have had as a trainee, maybe, you know, poring over certain aspects of a small contract or even a small document within that contract.
1: Definitely, Um, although... I think it's suits different people and it's just sort of, you know, what what different people are suited to. So I, re- I really love that aspect of it, but it's not, it's not particularly often that there's, you know, a, a cutting edge legal issue that we have to look into and, you know, spend days researching. Um, it, it's a lot more like helping somebody to pass their driving test than, um, you know, engineering a new part for a Ferrari you know Um, and and both are important but um, people that you know really into the academics of law love doing legal research love thinking through um, really complicated provisions would probably miss that if they were working with startups because uh, a lot of it is oh we um, just got this notice from company's house what does this mean and then you realize Oh shit! They haven't done any of their filings for a funding round that they thought they'd closed. So, like, so okay, let's onboard you. Let's um, help you work all this out, and we'll, and we'll help you close it off in a, um, you know, in, in the way that you need to close it off. And so, I, I suppose what that means for me is I see us more as business advisors that happen to specialize in law than you know that sort of academic black letter lawyer, which. Um, I I think you definitely need and and far more often you do see those kind of people in big firms and chambers than um, certainly in firms that that work with
0: startups. I kind of wanted to move on to, you know, the advice you might have for founders as a lawyer coming in from a legal perspective because as you mentioned most founders and most people creating their own businesses regardless of what they are probably have no background in law and probably don't have that understanding of you know what the legal requirements are with regards to growing a company and then also kind of the challenges be it employment data protection pensions blah 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 that come up when you know you're growing your company so what would you say are the biggest mistakes that early stage founders make that you've seen.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I suppose, I suppose there's there's two different types of of founders who who make mistakes. I think, I think it can be easy to overdo the legals and be too preoccupied with them when when you're at, at day one running a startup. So you know, sometimes you, you get people saying, okay, this is our business plan. We haven't incorporated yet. We've looked at trademark processes in 10 different countries because that's where we're going to end up eventually. And for those kind of people, it's take a step back, just cross those bridges when you come to them. So, you know, you need to make sure you've got product market fit and you've started to create some income. And then it's all about protecting those income streams with, Things like IP protection and you take on investment and you have a shareholders agreement and for those guys it's sort of seeing legal operations as a process just like any other that you build out as your business gets more sophisticated but then you do sometimes see founders right at the other end who are very blasé about it and um one one I suppose you, you would call it a mistake uh, if you're a lawyer, but it's just a problem that, that lots of founders run into. They're very excited to start. They might have a co-founder or, or maybe two co-founders. They incorporate a business by themselves, which is totally fine. You can do it online for £13. Um, they start developing codes. They start getting some customers on board. Then there's a big falling out between the three of them and they come to you and they say, okay, we've um, we've got this business, it's, it's actually going quite well now, but we've fallen out and um, yeah, what do we do now? And then if they haven't got a shareholders agreement or at least articles of association that um, say what happens when they fall out or, or even that sets out their obligations to each other, then that can be very messy and be quite tricky to, to resolve. Um, So I I would say not having a shareholder's agreement once the business is starting to pick up um, pace, that's that's quite a big mistake that that you see fairly often. Um, And I I think giving people equity too early. So, you know, there's an advisor who might be quite helpful and you think, oh, cool, if if this guy stays involved, um, then yeah, we should probably give him two or 3% of the business. But until you know that he's there for, for the journey, it's quite dangerous and, and to give up equity in your business. And it's quite difficult to take that back on, once you've given it um, as well. And it's these it's these kind of problems at the very early stage, that if you don't sort them out, they can still be hanging over your head at series A, series B, because it will come up in a DD process where there's a, a, a big dog investor who's going through all your documents and they see oh who's who's this person who's described as a co-founder do they still have shares in the company and unless you've got some kind of document that closes off that um that dispute then then you could be in trouble so I think that's probably the biggest one but there's all kinds of areas where um, you know as as you come to that that bridge you you need to close it off Um, you need to close it off properly but managing the cap table is probably the one that has the most serious repercussions, I'd say.
0: I guess you you mentioned kind of the co-founder disputes. You kind of take on a, another role in terms of like you're kind of like a divorce lawyer in a sense, but just for co-founders rather than married couples. And that probably is also really interesting to take a very different perspective.
1: It really is. Yeah, I, I, Sort of think sometimes that if, if lawyers doubled up as psychotherapists, it would be quite a uh, quite interesting niche.
0: <laughs> well, do you kind of do you kind of have any advice for founders trying to negotiate funding rounds? Because, again, that's probably something, you know, if you set out to create a business and, you know, you want to go down that path of raising VC investment or angel investment or whatever it is, um, it's probably a big, big hurdle like a lot of founders struggle even if their product is amazing even if they've got huge customer base that's lined up and things like that and they struggle and fall at that kind of point of trying to negotiate funding
1: yeah yeah definitely um i think the key bit of advice is to use a term sheet so most most investors will anyway but um, if you can agree a term sheet, which is just a summary of what the investment will look like, um, that's really useful for understanding one what you're signing up to and two for saving legal costs down the line. Um, it would normally be a one pager just setting out the key terms of, of the deal. Um, I think as well, goes back to managing the cap table don't don't give up too much equity at the early stages because if you are a business that um, is going to rely on equity financing to, to grow, each stage there's a, a a fundraising you're going to be diluted as a founder. So if you give up too much too early, you're going to get to um, you know just as things are getting interesting, and you're you're going to be a minority shareholder, and that that's dangerous for control over the company. But it, it's also just really um like disappointing. And you know, there's there's examples of companies that have really great exits, but the founders have basically been left with nothing because of, of how the documents have been set up. They've been basically washed out by by investors, which is a real shame. Um, I think as well, if you can find a lawyer who's who's used to doing um these kind of transactions for startups that's really valuable Um, i I think startups can be burned by going with lawyers who normally advise vcs or or investors because then you would just get oh well this is standard Um, and you know if it if it's bad for you as a founder it doesn't really matter whether it's a common provision or not the point is your lawyer should be advising you yeah this isn't great for you i think you should push back on this
0: And I guess because VCs kind of, you know, they make investments for a living and that's what they do whilst the founders, I guess, you know, this might be their first or second time fundraising and it's very new to them. So they can kind of not get held up on the details and actually like, you know, you read those horror stories where there's there's a term sheet that's been agreed or even later down the line where something comes to bite them in the back and they don't realise that they've fully agreed to that. And would you say, you know, having a good lawyer is a big part of that?
1: I think so, yeah. And, you know, it does come down to negotiating positions. So sometimes if it's, um, you know, very early stage, you really need the money, um, you might have to accept some things that you ideally might not want to accept. But the important thing is that you understand what all the provisions are doing. And so, as you say, there's no surprises later on um and i I think that's that's one of the situations where um you know using standard form documents or um a an online automating process it can feel very efficient from a ux perspective it's like oh wow all we did was plug in our details and it popped out the investment agreement but what people forget is that those type of those platforms their standard form has been designed by Investors, so you know it, it, it's all very standard and easy to use, but the terms are very weighted towards um, towards investors rather than the startup founders. And unless somebody's discussed with you what your priorities are, um, you know, and, any particular risks that um, face your business or you as individuals, it's difficult to say that um, these kind of of, of standard processes are, are right for you. Although that does all have to be weighed up with. A cost benefit analysis um you know if you're only raising half a million because it's your very first ever raise you don't want to be spending loads and loads on lawyers whereas if you're raising 25 million um well by, by that stage you'd be crazy not not to have lawyers and you know i don't think any business would do a raise of that size without lawyers but there is a middle ground where, it, where it's like you know, do we want to spend money on lawyers or, or shall we, should we do it ourselves? shall we piggyback off the investors' lawyers? And I think that's that can be a difficult judgment call.
0: You always do, investors always tend to have lawyers. So even if, you know, a startup is going in for pre-seed, very early stage capital, you always seem to, because the the funds for the most part are quite big and, you know, have quite a lot of backing behind them. Do you think that kind of puts pressure on on founders who don't necessarily have their own lawyer to just go with what the other lawyers are saying because you know they're lawyers and they they assume they're they're right
1: sometimes i think that that does happen sometimes um interestingly though you do see investors that that don't have lawyers um i think everybody in this area they're keen for it to be collaborative and by the time lawyers get involved the founders and the investors they've already you know, chatted it through, they're already really keen to make this happen. As far as they're concerned, it's actually a done deal and they don't want the lawyers to hold it up. So sometimes um, investors can be quite relaxed about it, especially if they're not the lead investor. So often if there's a raise of, of at least three, 4 million, you would um, have at least one law firm representing an investor. And then the other investors might just say, yeah, you know, we'll we'll look at the terms ourselves, but in in terms of legal sign-off, we're happy to follow what these, this other uh, investors' lawyers say. Um, It can get quite messy if nobody has lawyers. Um, And that's, you know, that's not because lawyers are, you know, super important or anything, although (laughs) um, it's just because in terms of, Getting things through in a way that is legal and makes sense—it just helps to have somebody who's trained to spot any issues.
0: I think that's really interesting, and some of the stuff you said is probably going to be really valuable to founders listening or people who might go on to start companies. But I kind of wanted to touch on, you know, advice you have for students and people who might be looking to. Pursue a career in law, but to specialize within the tech startup, you know, sector, because the big law is always out there, you know, it's all it's always attracting you, the big salaries, the office, and all of that. But like a lot of people don't realize there are sectors like social enterprise, like you've said, or um, or even kind of startup law. Do you have any advice for people wanting to explore that area who are? beginning or getting to kind of look around and then any advice for anyone who kind of has figured out it's something they want to do but don't know how to kind of break into the sector
1: yeah sure so to your first question I think for students it's it's really important that they try as much stuff as possible not not just law like outside of law just get involved with things try things out see if you can learn where your strengths are and where your preferences are because especially you know if you're if you're quite smart you can think oh I can be good at everything but eventually you get to a level where you're surrounded by lots of smart people and then you start to see oh actually there are areas that come naturally to me and I really enjoy and I can do them all day and and that's where you're going to make your biggest contribution so finding out where those strengths and preferences lie as early as possible i think it it is really key and then you know the only way you can really do that is by getting involved and building stuff so um, you know i think your podcast is super impressive you don't have to wait around until you don't need permission from anybody to jump into these things so um, find out your strengths and build stuff is, is what i would say and that's a very you know startupy techie ethos um, as well, which will do you good if if that is somewhere you want to end up. Um, in terms of of breaking into uh, to a, a niche in, into a sector, I think it's sort of getting involved with communities that are already geared up around um, around those areas. So, um, if there's ever in-person conferences and again they can be quite good just for seeing the kind of things that people are talking about um speaking to people in the coffee breaks about you know their their careers and what they like about that area um, but also things like slack groups or um on, on twitter on on linkedin different Substack newsletters um, and it, it takes a while it takes a while to feel like you're at the center of um know a a subculture i suppose i think it probably takes about a year or so just to find the right places where people are hanging out but um don't don't be put off by that just um test it out and and don't be embarrassed about asking questions i would say
0: and everyone always says you know starting is probably the hardest thing and then once you start it just gets easier from there so To finally end off, I always like to ask kind of everyone this question and I find it really fascinating to hear what people say, but what kind of motivates and inspires you?
1: Good question.
0: It's a pretty broad question. It is,
1: yeah. So I think for me, I am really motivated by ideas and creativity and interacting with other people so i really love helping people to develop themselves if you know if i think about supervising paralegals or or working with juniors i really love that process of um you know, working with somebody to really become the best that they can be. And I think there is an element of that in, um, in the job that we do as well. It, you know, it, it's, it's not that the clients owe their success to the lawyers, like far from it. But I think if you're not interested in people and, um, you know, helping them fulfil their potential, you you probably wouldn't enjoy ad- advising founders. And, and I think that's a thread for me, whether it's in my personal life or um, working with colleagues or working with clients. It's that sort of coming together with people, thinking things through, and, and building something really cool together.
0: So- and lawyers, well, lawyers ultimately a collaborative profession, and you know sometimes people get blindsided by. The importance of black letter law and legislation and all of that but actually at the end of the day you're advising real people and that's what matters so thank you so much for coming onto the podcast it was really interesting to hear your insights and i'm sure some of our listeners will find what you've said really fascinating
1: super welcome absolute pleasure and thanks for inviting me on
0: Thank you for listening to The Exploratory Journey and I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Please make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to follow all our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn to stay up to date with our future episodes.